Welcome into Loserville, folks. It is Philip Kingston. Tyler, I'm coming to you live from Vancouver. It's uh, very exciting. I've been uh, Canada. Uh, probably a good time to be in Canada. You're not looking for any real estate uh, while you're there, are you? I can't stop. However, the uh, the prices. So we, we visited the new um, building, and let me pull up the architect's name. Um, where did I have that? I've taken so many pictures of architecture since I got here. It's insane. Okay, it's the Alberni by Kingo Kuma. Um, and it's the one that I'll, I'll post a link to when we post the episode, but it's the one in Vancouver that looks like Godzilla got real mad and took a bite out of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so we were shopping that. And there's a 700 square foot, one bedroom, one bath in this new building not finished yet for sale for two million dollars two million that's mm-hmm. it low floor no view are those loons or uh u.s dollars yeah exactly no those are canadian dollars thank god and the canadian dollar <laughs> is suffering a little bit of weakness right now but it's not enough to make that uh something that we're going to add to the felissa properties portfolio anytime soon although i have to admit uh i I would not hate it if I if I just had to be in Vancouver. Think about all that money you'd save in your healthcare costs, though, with you know socialized medicine. I mean, maybe you could make it affordable. And you don't have to save any money for retirement because everybody's in the pension. So there really, I mean, there really are some freaking benefits up here. It's it's uh, like you you can afford to spend fifty percent of your income on housing because there's just not as much stuff competing for the other fifty percent. Oh, that's hysterical. Well, yeah, it's weird. We have a flip. You, I'm normally the one on the road. You're the one traveling this week. I'm in Dallas. I'm Finally. sorry. Yeah, it's hot, but a pattern change is coming. Uh, <laughs> at least that's what Pete Delkis told me. Well, he's rarely incorrect, but uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it'll be enough to entice me to come home. Uh, Crucia this week, a little bit of signposting. The the teaser that we keep offering looks like it may actually happen. Um, the TC Broadnax annual review. However, there's been a uh, <clears throat> there's been a, a development. We were trying to get that done this week because we thought there was a chance that council was going to evaluate him on Wednesday because they were so good and mad, right? Remember how mad they were? And no, in fact. Uh, Eric is putting it on the agenda for their last voting meeting in uh, August. So I think that'll be on the 24th. So sometime the week before, we're going to try to record our uh, pre-council evaluation evaluation of TC Broadnax with our special guests who should really actually be available at that time. So I I know we've teased that too much, but that is actually going to happen. And it's going to happen at a time where it'll be news you can use before the council actually Evaluate their evaluation. And what we're going to have to get to the bottom of too, if the 100 days started when the 100 day plan were released, or does that, you know, get to be backdated from after his review date too? Because Dallas is supposed to be fixed by September on the original timetable. On the original timetable. I mean, I think it's a question that we need to prompt our council friends to ask during the evaluation, because as far as I know, 
none of them were consulted on the 100-day plan. It was just Eric and TC. And if you recall, it involved significant public safety initiatives that Adam McGew, the public safety committee chair, had not been consulted on whatsoever. And those are small details, <laughs> minor, minor details. <laughs> well, fortunately, yeah, there's a lot going on that we could talk about other than that. Well, I want to I want to start with something I don't understand, uh, and I hope that the fact that it was in your notes indicates that you do. I don't I don't know what it means to sell carbon credits for the Trinity Forest. Yeah, I tried to do a bit of a deep dive for this. So um, if folks didn't see earlier this week what the Dallas Morning News reported, that uh, a couple of city leaders, uh, including Mayor Johnson and the folks on the park board, want to move forward with a plan to sell carbon credits in the Trinity Forest. Um, as far as I can tell, this is an initiative that sort of started dating as far back as 2008, when um, I guess council had made plans to do some conservation work within the Trinity Forest. Um, it, for folks that, I, I don't know, maybe carbon credits is a thing that I think a lot of folks in lefty land may know a lot about, but maybe not the general public, not that the people who listen to this show aren't part of lefty land, but right, carbon credits basically uh, are a program that allow individuals and companies that want to offset their carbon emissions to buy credits um, from an entity for tree planting or preservation. Uh, so in, in this case, the city would sell carbon credits from the trees processing carbon to lower, at least on paper, the amount of carbon produced by a buyer, which... See, but, okay, so I, okay, now I'm upset because I do understand carbon credits. I knew I understood carbon credits, and this is not carbon credits. This is fake. This is greenwashing, right? Uh, it, it's, yes. I mean, it, it seems, at least on paper, right, it basically lets entities use it for regulatory or legal purposes. So, so you know, it's, it's, carbon credits are supposed to be for we plant trees. We create new carbon sinks in the system where we're actually taking carbon out of the system that wouldn't otherwise have been taken out. When you, I mean, the Trinity Forest is there and we've already sworn on our grandmother's grave that we're never going to hurt it. How, how does this offset anything? Does so this the, make the planet healthier? It doesn't seem like, so the expansion, at least what I had read in the article, doesn't focus on the Trinity Forest as much as uh, sort of this proposal that the mayor floated that the extra income that was generated could go into developing additional green spaces in South Dallas. And so I guess the theory is that we would sell these carbon credits. City officials estimate that they would generate 20 to 25 million over the course of 40 years. Um, and that revenue would go into help conserving existing green space as well as developing new green space. Let me show you a picture since we're on Zoom and we can do this. And you can tell me. Unfortunately, our listeners can't, so we'll have to be real descriptive. Yeah, we're going to be as descriptive as possible. Um, Got to pull up the map of Dallas. Handy dandy. Uh, Google, and then we need the, uh, is it a load? The layer with the satellite. Okay, and now all I have to do is bring Tyler back up and share my screen. Sorry, I'm operating on a single screen, folks, far from home. Or, ordinarily, I'd be 
I would have my array of 16 screens in my uh, uh, layer in my, layer. my my legal layer. Um, all right. You seeing that? Uh, it looks like, well, it says you've started screen sharing, but I'm not seeing anything. Oh, now I am. Okay. Yes. The, uh, you see the Trinity? Yep. You see it? Um, that mighty river? Yeah. You see everything that's south of there down to call it I-20? Yes. What color is that? Uh, it's green. And yeah. Um, so I know that the mayor probably means new park facilities to help people um, have better neighborhood experiences. At least that's what I hope he means. Um, but since we're talking about carbon offsets, um, I'm curious how he thinks that the southern sector is going to do more than it is already doing to offset the carbon emissions that are being generated by the north. <laughs> well, and interesting. So one of the things, too, that talked about in the article that I had read, so some of the land apparently uh, is already being counted for the purposes of carbon credits. That was part of the Dallas Floodway Extension Project. And so apparently parts of the Trinity Forest are already being counted. There's a theoretical the way in which that is. It's not 100 percent authentic. Uh, or it's not 100 percent. OK, so if you say carbon credit, what you should mean is that you, you're going to develop a new carbon sink where there was no carbon sink before that takes carbon out of the cycle. And the Trinity Floodway Extension didn't actually plant new trees, but it did change the legal classification of part of the floodway to protected status so that it cannot be taken out of the system in the future you can't destroy that sink so i don't think you should get to offset for that but it, it at least isn't total bullshit. i mean the, the the extension did have or potentially could have had a uh, a preservation effect on the health of the carbon system i don't know that's that's as far as i can stretch i'm trying to be nice for reasons that have to do with being in 75 degree weather in canada <laughs> Yeah, uh, very interesting. Well, and did uh, when you were on council, Philip, did carbon credits or things like this ever come up before? You know, we talked about it all the time, but we had no idea how to do it because you get to the point of saying, well, what is it we're going to do? You know, at that time, the in southern Dallas, one of the big problems was developers can't develop anything down there because under our former tree mitigation program, the forested areas of Southern Dallas, even some areas that were previously developed but had been left to, to you know, return to nature um, since the development of the people left, they, they become undevelopable because of the amount that, that developers would owe from cutting down the trees that have naturally grown on those properties. And so, it, I mean, here, this is a real, another kind of tone deaf thing for Eric Johnson to say. If you're talking about greening up Southern Dallas, you're really talking about slowing down economic development in Southern Dallas. Um, and, and that's not that's not fake. And that's not a lesson that Eric shouldn't know. I mean, he was here in Dallas in political leadership while we were having that fight. And, I, you know, I don't and people who were his 
you know, real constituents and active supporters were involved in that negotiation over revising the tree mitigation ordinance. So, you know, sometimes I feel like he says things that are just kind of not well thought out or whatever, but this is just like, if you're a Southern Dallas person who's been waiting for economic development and watching it pass you by and pass you by and have to sit through what was a 10 year negotiation on tree mitigation, to hear the mayor say that they could use some of this carbon offset money to green up your part of Dallas. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how people in Southern Dallas think. I, I talk to them. I try to understand how they think, but I'm not one of them. So I don't want to put myself out there as, as speaking for them. But I believe if I were in their shoes, I might be infuriated. Yeah, well, I, it, unfortunately, that's not the only issue of sort of double talking that is going on. Um, and we'll kind of touch on some other parts of that later. I guess, yeah, your point is incredibly well taken about that, you know, especially in terms of what are the actual needs of folks that live in those communities. Um, you know, I mean, generally speaking, I think we're in favor of uh, being nice to the environment, right, and doing things that would help the environment, right? I think that goes without saying. That said, um, you know, there are some very real environmental racism that happens every day, right, in South Dallas. And, you know, one could argue that it would be better if we tackled that maybe first. Uh, as opposed so the, to you know, Shingle Mountain doesn't have shingles in it anymore, but the people in that neighborhood wanted the city to spend the money to turn it into a park. And the city said, uh, again, I'm just going to say the city said no, because I'm in Canada and I'm as chill as you're ever going to find me. Sorry, sorry, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that real env environmental racism, right, is a thing that definitely exists and folks have to deal with every day. And, you know, while the idea of generating additional revenue seems nice and promoting, helping the environment also would be nice, I just don't know that letting Exxon or other large companies get off the hook for polluting the environment um, really helps people out a whole lot. Well, I kind of believe in carbon uh, offset credits if generally speaking, if they're yes. done right. I mean, if they're done in a way that pulls carbon out of the system, but I mean, that's the whole point is you have to actually do the good. You can't just, and this is what, this, this is why you, we would use the term greenwashing. It's when you don't actually do the good or you do so little of the good. Like uh, I thought I saw that BP the other day is spending 325 billion this year on exploration and production of new uh, petro petroleum and petrochemical stuff in its portfolio you know it's an oil company and a chemical company and all that and then there there are strategic initiatives for um you know uh enhancing alternative uh energy resources was like 42 million and i could be off on the numbers but the point is all of these oil companies are have these lovely lovely shareholder communication um please don't regulate us advertisements that they show you on airplanes and other places um, to, to pretend that they're green when in fact what they're doing is accelerating the extractive economy that they've been involved in for the last 120 years and trying to get as much of it in before it's gone as possible. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on as far as next steps with regard to the carbon credit plan. So it sounds like 
the park board is going to be briefed by TC by October. Um, and, and that is what would sort of be the next step in that carbon credit conversation. Um, I, I might have to go to that. Yeah, put it well, there's not a date assigned, but definitely a thing to, to check out. I dropped this uh, sort of talking at both sides, and I don't know where I want to start with it. Um, but we wanted to talk about tax cuts. So in June, okay, you're gonna you're gonna continue down the the <laughs> the branch of talking out of both sides, which I think is a very good organizational thing. Just don't let me forget to come back to the uh, the racism thing. Okay. Yes. Well. Yeah. I, I, I think so. I'll play in too. So okay, talking out of both sides. So. One of the things we had on the docket to talk about was tax cuts. So, uh, and there's late breaking news on this front today as well. So TC unleashed uh, sort of a, a idea of what his proposed budget is going to be in that budget. There is a, uh, the biggest property tax cut in at least 37 years in Dallas. Um, so the proposed rate- Tax is, rate cut. Tax rate cut, yes. It will the still proposed, be a tax increase. Rate cut is at 70, uh, let's see, 2.75 cent drop from the current rate. So the current rate um, or the new property tax rate would be 77 cents per hundred dollars of valuation. Um, we were at 797 before. I think that is what it was. Yes. Uh, I think we had cut it a little bit from, oh, maybe they maybe they bumped that back up during COVID. I think that's what they did. Actually, sorry. So, pardon me. The new rate would be seventy-four point five eight cents. It was yeah, that, no, that, that's what it is because we've been down to seventy-seven some odd because we've been cutting the rate every year since twenty fourteen, I think. So it was um, seventy-seven. It was seventy-seven three three cents. It's yeah. going down to seventy-four point five eight cents. So it's a two point seven five cent drop from the current rate. What the council also did in June was they unanimously approved an increase in the homestead property tax exemption. We raised it from $107,000 to $115,500, right? For folks that don't know what the tax exemption is, right, that basically means the first $115,500 of your property's assessed value gets taken off and the taxes are then levied against the remaining amount, right? Um, and, it's, and, it's a, and it's basically a good thing. Like it's basically <clears throat> that affects people whose houses are as close to the $115,000 exemption as possible. And typically those people are low income. And that's, so that's a good thing. And we don't need to be upset about that. But what it does do is it creates a further imbalance in the property tax contributions of the relative asset classes. And in this case, because commercial property has the ability to hide its, its transactional value from the, um, from DCAD and uh, and use alternative valuation methods other than you know willing buyer willing seller fair market value, it's not valued at its proper rate. And so what this when you when you give homeowners protection from property taxes, the property tax paying class that's left to pick up the slack is renters. And so nobody ever wants to talk about this, but there's a serious equity problem with focusing tax relief on homeowners. Politicians want to do that all the time because those are much more likely to be voters than the renters are. But if you just want to talk about helping people who need help, then it, it's uh, it's got it's got some drawbacks. 
And so this is the interesting. So I went ahead and I did the math, right? So under the old system, uh, or I guess the lower homestead property tax exemption rate, a $400,000 home would have paid uh, $2,265 to the city in property taxes. With the new exemption, um, that amount goes to right around $2,200. So we're talking about an overall savings for that person of $65.73 if their property value didn't go up, which it did, right? Which is the which is the thing we always try to tell people is that your city taxes don't really matter as much as your school district taxes. And so yelling at the city and watching council members preen and strut talking about tax relief by cutting the city budget or by cutting the city's tax rate, I should say, nobody's ever actually cut the budget. Um, it's it it's pretty gross to see these council members, and there's one in particular who's doing it an awful lot right now, um, um, talk about that stuff when you're not really providing meaningful relief to your taxpayers, and you are making meaningful cuts in what could otherwise be provided by the city. So that's the fascinating double talk. I'm, this is the great Philip setting the ball up for, to go after, right? So we're talking about $65.73. As a result, the city would lose about $4.89 million in revenue as a result of this of this tax cut change, right? Um, not with not the exemption the change, exemption. right? Yeah. With the exemption change, yes. Yep, not the lowering the rate. And so another story that had come out this week, right, was the racial equity plan. So um, the racial equity plan, this is the audit that has been going on. You didn't on let me that, forget. <laughs> that's right. Um, there's a racial equity plan. Um, uh, an audit has been taking place, right? It came back, surprise, Dallas racist. Um, and then they've been developing sort of a, an initiative to be able to have sort of a guide for city departments to use to make sure that the policies that they put in place have measurable goals uh, to decrease sort of systemic racism um, across all areas of the city, housing, public safety, environmental justice, et cetera. Um, I have looked through the plan incredibly comprehensive, right? There are hundreds of measures that are in it, um, including ones that would increase uh, the number of people that are uh, proactive. Uh, this is funny, I find proactively monitoring illegal dumping. I don't know how one does that. I don't know how you think, hey, I bet Philip may take his tire and throw it in the Great Trinity. Um, I found that to be fun wording. Uh, I'll, but I'll, tell you, I'll tell you how they do it if you want to know. Yeah. They drive around. Yeah. Um, so they're going to increase the number of teams from two to four that are monitoring illegal dumping, uh, increasing outreach in historically underserved communities to get feedback on the city budget. So I'm going to touch, we'll touch on this when we talk about the budget process in general. You know, there's a survey that goes out. I had looked at the initial responses. Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of the responses to the budget survey, priority survey, all come from North Dallas. There are entire zip codes in South Dallas that had one respondent um, complete the, the budget survey. Um, so not great representation, right? Um, so this would, I guess, help do that. I would be curious to know how much outreach goes into promoting that survey in those areas to begin with. Um, well, and I'll, I'll tell you the budget survey we need to come back to. Yes, yep. Um, okay, other initiatives that are in this. so. Uh, they want to lower the amount of residents from historically underserved communities arrested from low-level offenses. 
Uh, interesting one that I think you talked about on Twitter, improving the indoor air quality at city-owned buildings. You got uh, to my favorite one. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, here's. Yeah. <laughs> okay, finish the list, and then we can we we'll can finish. go back so, over yeah, these. The I'm, one, so, I'm, there's bile rising in my throat. Uh, expanded recruiting efforts to increase diversity of candidates for city employment. Um, a plan to have a more inclusive hiring process to increase the number of women working for the Dallas Fire Department, um, as well as increasing the number of bilingual supervisors in the 311 department. Um, apparently, no supervisors are bilingual, um, which uh, fascinating. Um, so let's go back to the, the indoor air quality piece, and then we could draw the line to connect the double talk that I was speaking about. Well, I mean, each so the the big the big reaction of Loserville, I believe, and Tyler, you can dispute me if I'm if I'm if I've spoken for you inappropriately, but I think the big reaction from the Loserville um, uh, caucus is that they paid somebody money to go study this stuff, and this is what they came up with: indoor air quality in city-owned buildings. I mean, okay, here's the, they're talking about high asthma rates. Southern Dallas has some of the highest rates of childhood asthma in North America. And the reason is because of substandard housing. If you live in a place that has, um, in, you know, that hasn't been maintained well and is dirty, um, you're much more likely to develop asthma as a child. That's a very sad story. And it is something we need to work on. We need to improve not only our indoor air quality, but our outdoor air quality. So the idea here is they did a racial equity audit that came up with the idea of improving indoor air quality at city-owned buildings in historically disadvantaged communities with high asthma rates. Okay, um, yes, do that. Absolutely do that. Um, whatever it is we need to do with regard to extra cleaning or maybe filtering, air filtering. I, I, look, I'm, I'm more, I'm extremely happy to, to do that. But uh, what prevented them from saying improve indoor air quality across the historically disadvantaged areas of Dallas that suffer from higher rates of asthma? There is no state law that says cities can't mandate an indoor air quality standard for all structures. You could do that. Um, you could, you might have a hard time enforcing it in privately owned housing, but in rental housing, that absolutely could go under chapter 27 minimum housing standards that we already have in the city code. Private businesses operating with air quality that is the above of, of, of a pollution level that we set and we find them for that and, and make them remediate their own air, we can do that. That has not been preempted by state law. We could, we could be bold about requiring indoor air quality measures and we could be bolder about saying, hey, we're not gonna let concrete batch plants poison the air in the Joppy neighborhood. We, we could do all that stuff. But instead what we got was improve the indoor air quality at city owned buildings. This is not a serious exercise, Tyler. These people were not serious about racial equity. And the thing that I, that, that, well, let's move on to another one because I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. And, you know, Canada doesn't deserve that. What did Canada do? Mm -hmm. um, increase 
outreach and historically underserved communities to get feedback on the city budget by 10% every year. What's the point of that, do you think, Tyler? Uh, great question. I mean, the feedback uh, is not great, right? So as I sort of alluded to, I looked at the preliminary findings. There are uh, entire zip code areas in South Dallas that had one person respond to the city survey. Now, the interesting thing is if people ignore it anyway, then uh, you know it's the survey is one of those things that people do to give people the idea that they have a say in something, but when the city just ignores it anyway. I have a little different take. Yeah. The annual budget survey that the manager does should be defunded. And if the manager tries to survey the citizens of Dallas for any purpose, for budget, for any other purpose, he should lose the amount that the survey costs from his next year's salary. And here's why. Surveys by the management are uniformly an effort to take power away from council and give it to the manager. Because it's the manager trying to put numbers in front of council to say, look, here's what your people want. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, the first time this happened to me, um, I was offended and I said, hey, um, Mr. Manager, if you would like to know what my people think, then you may ask me um, because that's the job of the city council member is to translate the will of the people of his or her district into positive policy change and to tell the manager what the people of district name it want. And so the fact that we've had poor participation in a survey from Southern Dallas might mean that the people, the residents of Southern Dallas have a more realistic view of what those survey results mean than people in North Dallas who think they're maybe entitled to tell council what to do. And uh, it, it's, I, I really hate this budget survey. It, it shows the same thing every time because they survey the same people every time. It's rich people who live in crime-obsessed neighborhoods that have no crime. And so the survey always supports an ever-climbing police budget, which yet again this year, the manager has proposed to vastly expand the police budget rather than take on stuff that actually pays dividends. The, the police budget has been between 60 and 66% of the city budget for as long as anyone can remember. Does it do any good? Like, I, you can you can argue that it's a maintenance amount that you have to spend, but that sounds pretty grim. That's like okay, it can never be better than this in terms of public safety. I I, I mean, I don't know. I don't buy that. Well, that was and fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Well, so it was interesting in reading this, and I think Everton Bailey's reporting on this is wrong, or I didn't figure out how to interpret the the budget survey. The three areas that I read the study as having the most support for increasing the budget uh, were street maintenance and repair, police services, and social services. The three areas that folks said that they would cut were arts and cultural programs responding to code violations and economic development. I think this is what you're alluding to, Philip. Uh, you know, and I guess generally speaking, respondents wanted the city to focus on public safety, transportation, and environment sustainability initiatives and felt like Workforce education and equity, quality of life, arts and culture, and economic development should be lower priorities for the city. This ultimately comes down to the question of what kind of a place do we want to live in, right? And if we and had, do the respondents have any idea how much we're spending today on those things? Yeah, do you know how not, much we spend right. on arts and culture? No, it's a pittance. No. Yeah, right. Um, 
And that's, I think, the thing that I find fascinating about it is to say, um, you know, we would have fewer public safety concerns if people had more economic opportunity. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, Who you know, commits so crime? Younger men who don't have opportunity. That that is the well, actually, that's the largest source of sort of exogenous crime, if there is such a thing. Yeah, rich the, white people also commit yeah, crime. Yeah, and and the the most common violent crime, as we pointed out before, is always domestic violence. So, um, yeah. you know that. But in general, it, stuff that is easier to actually work on from the standpoint of a city is making sure that the people who are likely to commit crime have something better to do. Um, that you know, I, I'm not excusing um, sticking up a liquor store. There, there's no excuse for sticking up the liquor store. Don't do it. You know, it's wrong. Um, and it and it does say bad things about the person who does it and all that stuff. But the person who has stable employment and a decent place to live, and a park ten minutes away, and a school to send kids to. That person isn't sticking up the liquor store. Like you know, th these are these are things that. So, so we've been we've been spending sixty to sixty five percent of our budget on police for seventy eighty years. Um, okay. Uh, at some at what point is the system the issue more than the people? We already know the people are there. The people are going to be there tomorrow. They were there yesterday. The system is what we can change. And I, I don't know that. I get really frustrated by um, the survey. I'm actually I'm actually a little bit heartened to hear your version of the survey because social services never used to creep into the top three, um, and economic development never used to be mentioned as a as an ad or a cut. And I guess people have heard uh, Loserville, uh, and I think we're having a, a we're moving the needle on public opinion, and and people are noting that you know doing the Uber uh, incentive package or the Goldman Sachs incentive package might not be the best use of their dollars. But again, you're talking about the economic development budget. It, it, it's, it's a deck chair, you know, that's a deck chair. The, the, big, the big moving pieces that you can actually do something about are infrastructure investment. So in some, you know, people are talking street and street quality. That's the thing that they interface with the most. But sidewalks, I would argue, are equally important or maybe more. Um, a lot of people put a lot of value in their alleys, and I don't know why they wouldn't. They, the, you know, it, that was a, when the city builds a piece of infrastructure, that's kind of a promise to the neighbors that that infrastructure will be maintained at some point. Um, and so, I, you know, the, the answers actually are a little bit more socially responsible than I would have suspected. Yeah, what I think is interesting, and this gets back to that that double talk piece that I was sort of referring to. So there was interesting conversation, particularly around the racial equity audit, where there were some folks on council who, you know, were sort of saying, this is great. We don't know how we're going to pay for it. Right. Um, there was also this concern to say, well, there are, you know, and I think the quote that I read in the paper was like, well, there are black and brown and poor people in every city council district. Um, and so a need to think about mm. Dallas as a, as a <laughs> whole, which, you know, uh, is that great quote from the accommodation. But then Kara Mendelson also said in there, you know, we talk about South Dallas all the time. Why, you know, maybe the city should never approve any housing project that's north of I-30. 
What? Yeah. She said that? That was uh, in the Dallas Morning News article. Yes. That's what we've done for the last 60 years. That's why HUD sued us. We approved all the ones south of 30, which concentrated poverty and resegregated the city. How does she not know this? Yeah, I need to go find the exact quote. Oh, my God, that is grim. Um, and not New York Times grim, like actually grim. Okay. So Council Members Carol Mendelson and Gaydon L. Willis said they didn't agree with sections of the draft goals that recommended focusing on areas historically with the greatest need. They said the city should use data it already collects to figure which areas to focus on first. I feel like if we're going to be equitable, we need to be looking at what's at the bottom of the barrel that we need to clean up and get at that the fastest, said Willis, who represents far or northwest Dallas. Mendelson said the city's issues came down to mismanagement and money not being properly invested in the community. She said departments need more funding to help more people around the city. We keep fighting to, over dollars that we really we need for everybody, said Mendelson, who represents far north Dallas. There's not a single district that doesn't have people in poverty or people of color. She noted the city continues to allocate money to housing development in northern Dallas, despite city officials for years saying revitalizing southern Dallas is a priority. She suggested a plan for the city to only greenlight projects south of I-30. When we have a city that's one of the most segregated by race and income, isn't that what's really the problem? And this plan isn't addressing that. That is, okay, a couple of things here. First of all, Gay is expressing an idea not very well. I wouldn't call, I wouldn't call poor neighborhoods the bottom of the barrel. Um, that's, that's not the best phraseology I've heard, but it, this is an idea that I've been pushing for a long time. And it's something that, that, for instance, it makes me hate this racial equity audit even more because it, the audit is so unnecessary. Um, everyone knows, well, no, I take that back. Most people in Dallas have an easy time being very disconnected from what the physical, uh, situation in Southern Dallas looks like. You don't have to go there. And in fact, we haven't put anything there that would draw you to go there. So you only go there if you have some reason to. Um, my reason was that two reasons. I love real estate. And so I'm always looking for interesting stuff. But, you know, I was on city council. You've got to go look at the stuff. You have to go look at it. Uh, and I know council members who never did. Um, I served with some. But I figured it was my duty to go look at it. And there are neighborhoods all over this city that do not have sidewalks, storm drains, or lighting. I don't, I mean, I don't know how we anticipate that a neighborhood is going to thrive, that its children are going to learn if they have to wait in the mud for the school bus because they don't have sidewalks or storm drains. You can find these neighborhoods, and there are multiples of them. So instead of doing a strategic plan with a consultant who got paid a pretty penny, why not just promise every neighborhood in Dallas sidewalks, storm drains, and lights? My neighborhood has those three things. Does your neighborhood have those three things? Mine does, yes. See? So, I mean, now, listen, there are, there are neighborhoods in Preston Hollow that do not have sidewalks, and they would not be happy if we tried to put them there, and I don't want to fight them on that. They, they can decide not to have sidewalks if they want. But with regard to figuring out how do we address racial equity, um, poverty is such a – is so closely correlated with race in our country that all you have to do is find a poor neighborhood and invest money in it 
and you have almost there's almost no chance that you won't be significantly improving racial equity in your city. Like that that's a very that's that's a much better strategy than um uh, improving the indoor air quality of city-owned buildings. I, I, you know, I'm I'm picking on that one, but all of these are tiny, um, in tiny uh, initiatives in comparison to the things that are right in front of our nose and so obvious. Um, yes, I want more women firefighters. Um, it, it, it's, that is an equity issue. It's a gender equity issue and it's a gender equity issue that has a very obvious cause. Um, the, the decisions that have been made by fire departments across the country and it's, and in Dallas, just the same as everywhere else have largely been made by older white men, uh, who, um, heavily value the fun that they have picking up heavy equipment and using it. There's no reason for fire equipment to be heavy, by the way. It, we have engineering that allows us to do things differently that would allow more women to be firefighters. Uh, and by the way, most firefighting isn't fighting fires anymore. It's primarily healthcare. Um, and there are a lot of women who really want to be in healthcare and who would really like the challenge of emergency medicine. And, you know, DFNR can provide that challenge. So I'm not I'm not criticizing that at all. But when you compare that to the equity impact of finally, finally delivering on the promise to Pemberton Hill or to Mill Mill City or you know the Clarendon neighborhood where 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 houses a few years ago didn't have basic utilities, like weren't connected to utilities. Not they lost their utilities because they didn't pay for them. They weren't connected. You know, when you have that kind of racial inequity, start with the big stuff. And that, that's the thing that, you know, I think on the one hand, you know, it is good that the city is recording, you know, goals that have specific numbers and timelines, right? Because then people can be held accountable for them. The unfortunate thing that often happens in city governments or governments at all and among politicians is that you know, too often they like to be able to tout their progress on achieving goals um, rather than, you know, fixing the entire sort of operation, which I think everybody recognizes, though they don't want to pay for it, is going to require a tremendous capital movement from one area to another area, right? Uh, and here's where I think Gay and Kara deserve a little bit of credit, even if I don't agree with the way they phrased it. What they're talking about is over-investing in certain council districts and, and moving money from districts that, frankly, need the money less. Now, Kara had a little shot in there about, oh, there are poor people in every district. And that's true. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, it, 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 it sort of uh, it, it underplays the need, the relative need of, of, of different areas. But we always call it, I'm sure you guys called it this too, is spreading the peanut butter. You, you know, every area of town's got to get their share or council won't vote for it. Well, we've got, we've got to be a little bit braver, I think. And we need management to be a little bit braver to say, listen, guys, uh, we have been doing this wrong for too long. What happens if we just overfund the Southern Dallas districts by about 10% each? 
that won't break the budget. And we're only talking about the stuff that gets invested in kind of infrastructure anyway. So it's not even on, you know, on a year over year basis, it's not even a scary number. But to do that and just put it in public infrastructure that has been denied to these people for so long seems to me to be such an easy investment idea. I don't know why anybody's looking for a hundred recommendations from an racial equity audit. Right, and that's the you know it's sort of funny that you know when we talked about the property tax exemption thing, that's the thing that I know when I was on council, I struggled with always was like, you know, for a four hundred thousand dollar home, we're talking about a difference of sixty five dollars. And yet we're giving up $4.89 million in order to do that, right? And do I think that we could, if I believed in the city officials to invest almost $5 million in a positive way, I would gladly give up $65 to be able to do that, right? I mean, but they need, they need a specific proposal, right? They need something that they're going to do with it. And if $4.89 million puts uh, storm drains in, I'm going to guess here, and we're going to get feedback before the next show from a civil engineer that's going to be um, mirthful and perhaps derisive. Um, I'm going to guess that that is, uh, that's going to drain six block faces, so three total blocks. Um, I could be off on that. In fact, I probably am. But the point is simply that if you if you identify something, if you have a if you have a, a needs inventory, and the city keeps these needs inventories that run into the hundreds of billions of dollars when you add them all up, and you know, pick a project that that you that looks transformative. Um, that's not indoor air quality at city-owned facilities, and and tell voters that that's what you're going to do with it. You're not going to cut the tax rate this year because we're going to start fulfilling our promise to these people who have, I mean, so clearly been discriminated against in, you know, all manner of things, but the city budget being one of the chief ones. And yet we have politicians who would rather tout the fact that they save people money because property taxes are evil. Right. Well, and I, you know, I get it. It's the, it's been ingrained in a certain kind of voter's mind for a long time. I mean, to the point that you even have that, that that's been a, something that John Wiley Price talks about uh, is the cost of government trying to control it. Um, and so I, I don't know. I know it's real and I don't want to, I don't want to call politicians who are responding to people's actual concerns um, cowardly, but when those concerns are patently false or made up, and they really kind of are, um, when you're talking about $65 on your tax bill, uh, yeah, at some point, John Bryant once told me that the, the job of a public servant, especially an elected official, has to be at least 50% public education. Um, the people who were trying to survey to find out what they think and all that, all that useless stuff, you know, if they don't know what we're already doing, then, you know, they wouldn't even describe their own advice as valid, you know? And so I, I don't know it there needs to be a little bit more reliance on what we I, it, sometimes call leadership, uh, you know, and, and a little less 
uh, reliance on spending money on consultants and surveying things to death. How did this survey, this survey didn't fucking pave anything. Let's uh, continue the, the budget conversation. So, I got one more thing out of this okay. list, though, that, that yes. just struck me. Um, it, not, it didn't just strike me now, but it struck me in a way that I did not enjoy, and I'm trying to find it. Okay, I'll think of it in a minute. I'll come back to it. What's so, your next thing? Yeah, well, just to continue the conversation about the budget. So it's obviously a budget planning session. Oh, um, wait, I got it. I got it. It's back to uh, speaking out of both sides of our mouth. Yes. Here's one that I like if I didn't know anything else. Lower the amount of residents from historically underserved communities arrested for low-level offenses from 7585 to 6068 by December 2025. Why would I not be happy to read something like that? Maybe I wouldn't be happy to read something like that if the police chief hadn't already promised a year ago to reduce that number a lot more than is in the audit recommendations. And maybe if they are talking about 7,000 odd low-level offenses, Perhaps I'm not satisfied with 6,000 people continuing to be arrested every year for low-level offenses. Um, that is, I mean, how is it that the people conducting the racial equity audit haven't been monitoring what Chief Garcia has actually been saying about low-level offense arrests? You know, or the district attorney not wanting to bring those uh, to trial anyway, right? Uh... Yeah. Interesting. Okay, Very sorry. Interesting. I, I stopped this down and you were ready to move. No, something, yeah, definitely something to continue to monitor. And it's connected to the city budget. So it's budget season. Um, TC unveiled his sort of broad outline today. I think the full budget is expected to come tomorrow. So the total number in, in TC's budget is $4.51 billion, um, which includes a general fund budget of $1.17 billion. Um, we already talked about the property tax rate decrease of 2.75 cents. 1.17 for the general fund? Is that right? Yes. Yep. yep. That's disturbing. That's That sounds low to me. So what was interesting about this too, right, at the same time that they're touting this decrease in the property tax rate of 2.75 cents, they're also going to increase rates and fees for sanitation, storm drainage, and water utility. So we're playing the shell game, um, which... Uh, that stuff just drives me. It's maybe I am triggered by it because I live in, or well, I recruit uh, in the state of Indiana. And uh, Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue University, touts that he's held the line on tuition at Purdue for like ten years. What he doesn't mention is that fees have just grown exorbitantly <laughs> over that time. So, right? Yes, you, know, you are right. Tuition has not increased, but when you raise fees, right, people still end up paying. More money. So they're saving, they're cutting the property tax rate, increasing fees and rates for sanitation, storm drainage, and water utility. Um, the budget also includes a raise in the minimum wage for city employees from $15 to $18 an hour. Um, Yay! Which that's There's a good, a good one. Important to note so Dallas does have one of the highest property tax rates of any major city in the state, right? So, um, Houston, San Antonio, and Austin, their rates are all under 57 cents per $100. Um, 
Um, El Paso is the only other major city that has a higher tax rate than Dallas does um, for what that's, that's worth. Misleading. Um, Austin remains by far the most expensive city in the state because of fees. The fee burden in Austin makes it significantly more expensive to live in than in Dallas. San Antonio overcollects for electric delivery. It owns its own uh, electric delivery company. Here in Dallas, we've got TXU. In, in San Antonio, it's city public service. It's a city-owned utility. And rather than running on a true cost basis, they actually over-collect, and the city gets a massive windfall from CPS every year that allows them to keep their property tax rate lower. This back to our rates and fees conversation earlier. Um, as we've talked about, and this is no surprise, the bulk of the funding goes to public safety, uh, including the city planning to hire 500 new police officers by the time we get to 2023. By the way, that's impossible. The city has a lot of people to hire. The city, well, and, and so this, you know, it's another nuts and bolts talk. It's like the city will not, um, the city will hire certain lateral hires police officers who are already licensed, but it primarily wants to hire out of its own academy because we think that training our own officers on our own policies is better. And the academy has never been able to have throughput of higher than about 180 officers a year. Um, so saying 500, it's just, that's, that's just like a fucking bald faced lie. Uh, there are also incentives, I think, to keep people from retiring. Yeah, city is Bardnex is proposing the city spend four million dollars on financial incentives to entice officers on the verge of retirement to stay for at least one more year. That's a terrible idea, because it, it, like the officers leave, and you have so much more money to play with, and the new officers are cheaper. So yeah, I, I, is, yeah. no, I, I mean, quite... I, I, that's this is uh, this this isn't great. So their overarching goals. So uh, before the budget came out, you know, TC, you know, wanted to continue to put funding towards requiring sort of venue operators to register for, with the city. This is the whole, you know, we had the shooting at the concert in South, the mass shooting at the, the concert in South Dallas. So increased funding for public safety, or pardon me, with um, venue operators. Um, Clearing up the, the the building permit backlog, um, work to help divert non-emergency calls from 9/11, um, creating an additional team to address 911. We're not still 9 taking calls from 9/11. Yes, helping divert non-emergency calls from 911. Uh, uh, a homelessness team. Uh, the mayor had released his memo uh, calling for uh, increased funding for public safety, um, reducing the property tax burden on taxpayers. Um, increasing support for code compliance, fixing streets and sidewalks, and fully funding the Office of the Inspector General. Um, we're in the mayor's budget priorities. Well, I would be upset about the mayor's budget priorities if he ever had found seven more friends to back anything he wanted. So <clears throat> just take the mayor's priorities and know that that won't happen. Um. To give folks the timeline, so the TC unveiled his outline today. I think the full budget is supposed to be released over the weekend. There's a budget workshop on August the 9th, so next Tuesday, 
and then council would vote on September 7th and September the 21st to approve the budget. Uh, but between August 11th and the 25th, there are um, town halls, both virtual and in person, all across the city where folks can go talk to their elected representatives and give them their feedback on the city budget. Um, which uh, I know Philip and I have given you lots of fodder to be able to give them feedback on. And you should. I mean, <clears throat> budget town halls are fun, and you're going to meet neighbors you wouldn't otherwise meet, and you hear, hear things that people care about that you wouldn't have known about. But <clears throat> here's how the budget works in Dallas. you got 15 people with their own individual constituencies up there on the horseshoe, um, and you got one dude making a budget, TC. He throws the budget into the middle of the horseshoe, and then he suddenly finds 20 million more dollars that came out of unprogrammed funds from the 2012 bond package, obsolete items, things that you know, unexpected savings in police overtime, something. How would you like to spend this $20 million? And the 15 rabid jackals around the horseshoe spend all of their time between now and the date on which they actually have to send the budget by state law for first and second reading, um, which, you know, in, in Dallas, we don't, even, we don't even do reading. Reading isn't like part of our uh, uh, procedure. It is in a lot of places, including Congress. And anyway, you have this deadline, and 15 people will spend three weeks fighting each other over $20 million, while the $1.17 billion, uh, or no, the 100, what was it? Yeah, the $1.17 billion general fund budget slides through more or less unscathed. Um, this year, there will be no, I'm told there will be no amendments offered to reduce the police budget in any way because council apparently just doesn't have the guts for that. Um, there will be no major movement by, for instance, Southern Dallas representatives to try to stop the spreading of the peanut butter and like overfund infrastructure spending in the Southern sector. You know, that that's like, that's the, I mean, I'm one of a few people in, on the city council to ever push the idea of overfunding certain parts of town to correct problems. And those people have almost never been southern dallas representatives you know so i mean i think diane ragsdale did uh and she's been off council for a bit wouldn't mind if she went back on council but um so you know that the budget is is our our particular form of council manager government has proven to be very resistant to budget amendments by council and usually when the manager releases the budget it's going to be within one-tenth of one percent of what it will look like when it is adopted in late September. Which is, yeah, that's unfortunate to hear that that's how it works in, in Dallas. You know, where I, uh, when I was on the council in Indiana, one of the interesting parts of our process was, you know, there was the max levy. We knew how much money the state was going to give us, right? Um, and there was, you played this weird shell game where, you would put these line items in our budget to fund something that we weren't really going to do, but you had to have it in there so that you got the maximum amount of money and could do the sort of rearranging of, of um, funds 
um, to be able to provide those areas. But, you know, we had a, I was on the budget committee. We had a budget committee within council uh, and every year, you know, our mayor, because we don't have city managers in the union, our mayor would propose a budget to us, the mayor and the clerk uh, would, um, and then the budget committee would sit down and sort of go through things line by line and try to really address some really vexing problems um, that were facing our city at the time. Um, I think it's just unfortunate to hear that council doesn't seem to be interested in using political capital to do that. It's a uh... There are so many levers the manager can pull to stop eight votes from coalescing around a major change to his budget, including, you know, just it's not bribes, but, you know, you'd suddenly find a little bit of money for a specific project. In Horse a trading. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not it's politics. It's it, it, it ain't great, but it's how we do things. It's not like somebody should go to jail for this. It's just really hard to change the Dallas budget once the manager says, this is how I see it going. Now you could, if the mayor got behind a major change and that has not happened since Laura Miller was in office. And it's not going to happen. So the it's mayor, not going to happen this time. The mayor uh, said today he's in favor of Broadnax's proposed budget and he believes it focuses on the issues that are most important to our residents. I have been unequivocal that the top two priorities for this year's budget should be public safety and tax relief. I am pleased that the Dallas City Council will now have the opportunity to demonstrate their commitment to these same priorities by investing in making your neighborhood safer while also delivering the largest single year tax rate reduction in modern Dallas history. Uh, and this is because Eric Johnson's voters are people who care about property taxes because they live in million dollar homes. This is accurate and million dollar be the, the floor for his supporters. Um, but you know, Tyler, um, you're not doing a good job of making me want to come back to Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I could sweeten the pot. So other interesting things while we're talking about budgets. So there was an interesting article that came out from Matt Goodman in D Magazine this week about DART. So Dallas Area Rapid Transit has an extra $215 million more than they thought they were going to have due to higher than expected sales tax revenue. And they are asking the DART board for permission to give that money away to their partner cities so long as those partner cities spend the funds on transit-related projects. There's also another pot of money of $55 million to help improve access to public transportation. So the total amount of money that DART is working with is about $270 million. Um, DART proposed dividing up the funding based on the proportion of sales tax that each city is accountable for. Um, so the city of Dallas would get uh, under the proposed plan about half of the $270 million budget, uh, uh, I guess, their budget windfall. Windfall. Yes. Um, interestingly, and uh, Goodman notes, you know, DART has plenty of, of needs of their own. Um, they have a plan to invest at least $1.9 billion with a B in capital projects over the next five years. Um, 95 of the trains reached the end of their 30-year lifespan between 2025 and 2028. Um, they also have plans to upgrade signaling systems, bolster passenger amenities, raise platforms, perform capital improvements, as well as expand the services they provide. Uh, and when arising the system, uh, folks will remember that DART actually shut down their operations um, during the winter freeze this time around for the first time in their history because the lines aren't weatherized. Um, 
Dallas city officials <laughs> sort of have a proposal to use the money on several projects, including helping to fund DART's free rides for students program, um, offsetting the streetcars, uh, operating and maintenance costs, and knocking off items on the city sidewalk master plan. Interestingly from that, so two friends of the program, Hosanna Yuneru uh, and Patrick Kennedy, uh, spoke out against the DART proposal. So Hosanna represents the city on the DART board. Um, she said that she feels like DART could better use the money itself rather than giving it away, uh, saying, quote, what I think of as the responsibility of DART and the value DART brings to member cities is running an efficient and effective public transportation system. If we're able to use this money for things we know internally we have to fix, and we know these things are going to also affect our ridership, that will make our riders feel like we're investing into them as users of our system. Um, other friend of the program, Patrick Kennedy, argued that the allotment should be decided by population rather than sales tax percentage, um, saying that some cities such as Garland have higher ridership <coughs> in their sales tax revenue would reflect. He argues that smaller cities such as Glen Heights should receive a flat fee or else they'd get what amounts to pennies. Um, he suggested that the program run like a grant proposal uh, where maybe the cities would pitch projects that DART would approve. Um, maybe the cities also add in some of their own matching dollars and two to make a bigger impact, but doesn't want to hand over a blank check. Uh, his quote was their land use policies, parking policy, density, job density, and last mile connections, whether the public realm feels safe, whether it's walkable, <laughs> those are all things that are outside our control of the agency. And a lot of our member cities are cash strapped. So there's a huge financial windfall. DART wants to give it back to the cities. Some members of the DART board are saying, why don't we spend it ourselves? What say you, Philip? Well, you know what's driving it, right? No. Um, the northern um, members, the suburban members of the DART board, uh, know that their populations are much more skeptical of DART than Dallas is. And yes. Yep. They are worried that if their residents see, you know, DART get this sales tax windfall and not give it back, that they will be criticized or they will put their own city councils in jeopardy. I think I don't really buy that. I mean, people don't really pay attention to DART or its budget. I mean, look, it made Loserville. It, you know, it, it, it's on. <laughs> it, it, it is the definition of esoteric if it's here with us, correct? <laughs> so um, I, I don't buy it, but that's what's driving it. And um, it, it, Hosanna, in my mind, Hosanna's suggestion is the best one. DART should keep it. It has a lot of needs, including the ones that she outlined, which include the cleanliness of the station for the user experience. Patrick's arguments are extremely good, and he pointed out quite rightly that you can't spend a windfall on O&M. It's like if you uh, if you win the lottery and you use that for consumables, um, you know, you're going to run through it. And uh, the idea of a windfall is that you put it into a capital um, uh, investment that pays dividends in the future. And you'll notice that the city of Dallas's proposals for the use of the money are all operation and maintenance, with the exception of some sidewalk programs. Um, and and also, you know, it's the city has this political problem with paying for the Oak Cliff streetcar 
every year they argue over whether they're going to chip in their amount. And so they, they, they talked about, you know, putting it toward the operation and maintenance of the Oak Cliff streetcar. Really, that just, the, the streetcar just needs to be connected to the rest of the system and put back into the O&M of the system is what needs to ultimately happen, which is a dark get off your ass um, uh, imperative. But yeah, I think, so from a practical, from a idealistic standpoint, Hosanna's right. From a political standpoint, Patrick's right. If they ran it like a grant program, this would work great because cities would match the dollars with their own dollars to get the capital investments that they want. That they, and can't they have to have a plan to do it, right? Yes, and they have to have a plan. And Dart gets to evaluate the plan for the purpose of whether the plan uh, serves Dart's function of moving uh, service area residents where they need to be. So, I mean, that, it, it, these are good ideas. They're from our two greatest friends and allies on the board, and they are fucking doomed. They're going to give this money back to the cities. This is a thing. It's funny. We talk about, you know, that northern suburbs um, piece. You know, gosh, this is a, a thing that seems to be happening all over the place. Um, I, we've talked about Indiana a lot, but they're currently debating. The governor wants to, they have this huge windfall from COVID funding. Uh, and as well as, you know, increased uh, tax revenue, and they want to mail people a $200 check um, to Indiana taxpayers. Um, and it's, be, you know, what's fascinating to me about this is, and again, it's to that John, your John Bryant quote from earlier, you know, people uh, don't like the government wasting their money, right? But it's behooves politicians and leaders to prove to people why their money is worth it right yeah um, no it's 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 in fact their responsibility yeah like if you if you expect american people to turn over their hard-earned dollars to you and you haven't given them a credible plan for what happens to it they're going to turn into republicans or or worse libertarians right yeah but you have to make the argument right and that's the thing that is is uh, yeah, frustrating. So the Dart Board is expected to vote on that later this month. Uh, another thing for listeners to keep an eye on. I have two if more listeners things. Want to, if listeners want to like weigh in on that, you know, um, definitely contact your council person or contact the Dart Board members from your city directly. They 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 get so much less citizen contact than a council member does, and they actually to the point they get so little that they actually enjoy it. So you're like you're you're going to be making their day. They'll be happy to have somebody know that they exist. Probably exactly. Right? Okay, I had two more things. One, so city council committee, the quality of life, arts, and culture committee. So that's uh, Baz, um, Chad West, Carolyn King Arnold, Paula Blackman, Omar, Paul Ridley, and Casey voted this week in support of a resolution that would limit city government resources from being used in investigations related to abortions. Um, city workers would be barred from keeping records, giving out information, or doing surveillance work related to investigations of abortions or miscarriages. Um, other Texas cities have done something similar, including Austin and Denton. There are some exceptions, and this is where I have a question because I'm not an attorney. City workers would not be prevented from complying with state or federal law. So my question, Philip, if Kim Paxton says they have to, what does this resolution actually accomplish? That's a good question, especially from Indiana, where the AG has actual 
authority to say stuff like that. In Texas, if Paxton says do it, you don't have to. He doesn't. He doesn't have the the authority to to do that. Um, and you know, it it is it is actually a massive hole though in the resolution. And before we get off on what's wrong with this thing, let me just say those people you just listed, especially Baz, who brought this up, I'm so proud of. I mean, thank you. That's you know, even if it's to the extent it's symbolic more than practical, symbols make a difference and being willing to do something in the face of, you know, an issue that has many, if, if not, I mean, the vast majority of the city of Dallas is upset. Like we know for a fact that vast majority of the city of Dallas is upset. So good on them for that. But yeah, as a practical matter, and this is the thing I tried to warn Baz about, um, is the last time we told Dallas Police Department, who is the agency this resolution is mainly aimed at, not to do something with regard to a state law crime. They said, oh, yeah, we won't do that. Are we and then they kept, marijuana? Yeah, we said don't arrest people for low-level marijuana. And they just kept fucking doing it, you know? And to this day, nobody's ever been held accountable for that, you know, extreme uh, episode of uh, uh, insubordination. Um, you know, and if there's no, if there's no accountability, what's the point of the resolution? You know, it is purely symbolic at that point. You've taken away all of the efficacy. Yeah. Well, and like marijuana arrests, you know, the district attorney has already said his office isn't going to prosecute women who are seeking abortions. And that's, and that's, you know, that's awesome. That's great. But if people are still subject to arrest or fear that they will be, uh, you know, the terrorists already won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good to see that the, the council, like you had said, do this. I do just question about how it works. In the well, I mean, they have, uh, you know, they have, the, the council has values. Um, if you ask, I think, I, I don't think there's a member of council with the possible exception of one who doesn't deserve to be whipped for it on this episode. Um, who would say that they don't support uh, a woman's right to control her body? I think I think that, I think that's a, a universal value on council. The question is, how far are you willing to go to validate your principles? And if the if the if the answer is you're not even willing to entertain um, criticizing your city management over letting DPD do whatever it wants to do then the answer is that's a pretty hollow sentiment on your part. It's a value, but it's not a strong value. That's fair. Yeah, definitely something to hold them to, right? Um, okay, I had one sentimental thing. Did you have anything else, Philip? No, I, I am, uh, you got to mine. I thought, you know, I, I love, so this is the fun part of this partnership. I love that not only did you anticipate my additions to the list, you did math. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, back of the napkin math. You, Our listeners can't see it, but yeah, there's, yeah, the, you, uh, you, there's you, the math. You have earned lunch or something. So our my sad sentimental thing of the week, Tim Ryan leaving Fox 4, retiring at the end of the month. I knew you wanted to talk about this. It makes me very sad. Channel 4 is my morning news outlet, uh, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I love Tim Ryan. I love Tell It to Tim. 
great. I, you know, I, uh, I, so this is only, this is only an expression of my own ignorance. It is not meant to be judgmental of Tim Ryan's fans. I was not aware of the popularity of that show. Um, you are not the only person who feels this way. I simply wasn't really aware of the show. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think it's the most watched morning news program in the city. Uh, and rightfully so. Tim's great. Uh, and he has a segment on Fridays called Tell It to Tim, where people can call in and complain about Mike McCarthy and Eric Johnson wanting a different, you know, football team in Dallas and everything else from there. I like uh, that. What, it's have great. they announced his successor? They have not yet. No. Is it Conan O'Brien? <laughs> I'm going to say probably not, but I, you never know. Is it the Dallas version of Conan O'Brien, someone who will, who, who, who will who uh, flounder in the large shoes that he's been given to fill? It's, uh, man, it's just, it's really rough. So, oh, uh, and I, oh, I just, I, I just did a misogyny. Surely the new, new host woman. will be a woman, right? Anchor man or anchor woman. He does have a co-host, Lauren Prisbel. Why don't right? they just so promote they her? Could do two, they could do that. They could do two women like the Today Show did. Um, I like watching uh, two women at Lauer, right? Um, but Tim Ryan has been at Fox Four since 1989, uh, and has been the host of Good Day since it was started in 1995. So well, I'm accepting <clears throat> applications for morning news uh, viewership. Why don't you just why don't you throw your hat in the ring? That's Name right, in the hat. I always news. I always screw that Name up. Name in the hat. Name in the hat. Yeah, morning news host Tyler Wade. I, I mean, I I tune in for what what is the what's the, what's the title of the Tyler Wade morning show? That would be a tough one. Wake up with to, Wade. Wake up with Wade. Tee up, up with, with Tyler. I think listening to us talk, you know, once a week is probably about as much as the public can tolerate. Right? That's. You know, we uh, I think you're right, but I'm always surprised at. <clears throat> I'm not surprised at the size of our audience because I think it should probably be even smaller than it is. But the uh, I'm always surprised at the the level of talent among the people who listen to the show. And we were uh, alerted at some point recently that there's an appellate judge on the Fifth Court of Appeals whose name I'm actually not going to mention because we had talked about a case that is headed to the Fifth Court of Appeals. Um, but <clears throat> the fact that a person like that is a loserville listener, I mean, I, I don't know, man, I, I feel, and we, we got a little bit of preview news that we're embargoed from sharing with the listener that there, there, there might be, uh, a major award, uh, a recognition, uh, in, on the, on the level of a, uh, uh, a leg lamp from Christmas story. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Frigile, right? Uh, yeah, it's exciting stuff. It's exciting stuff. Well, I have to get back to enjoying weather, um, freedom, uh, incredible views, and urbanism. I'm very busy. That's uh, well, yeah. It sounds like you've got a lot on your plate, and you've got all kinds of upcoming travels. So uh, I don't know. Hopefully, uh, Dallas can continue to find ways to entice you to come back. 
Uh, yeah, you know, nobody funny. really cares as long as they keep doing the show. Awesome. Well, thanks, y'all. Thanks, Tyler. See you next week.